Federal contractors don't see a lot of room for growth after inflation in fiscal 2024, with a few large agencies actually requesting a reduction in funding relative to what was enacted this year. Stephanie Castro of the Professional Services Council joins us with a few observations. And before we get to that, though, Stephanie, I wanted to ask you about something a little bit more topical right now, and that is a new solicitation came out called T4NG2, Generation 2, from the Veterans Affairs Department, and there's a little consternation over that one. Good morning, Tom, and thanks for having me. You know, T4NG2 stands for, for those in your listenership that don't know it, it's Transformation 21 Total Technology, Next Generation 2. So, of course, everyone calls it T4NG2, because why wouldn't you? It is a 10-year contract vehicle worth 60 to $61 billion. So there is a lot of heightened interest within the federal contracting community for obvious reasons. They did, however, as a follow-on vehicle, kind of rush through, in our opinion, uh, the solicitation process. They had a couple of opportunities to comment on draft solicitations, the draft RFPs, but those turnaround times were about four business days each. And so what led us to conclude from that situation is that the Veterans Affairs Department wasn't particularly interested in a lot of meaningful industry feedback. And so the final solicitation came out here on March 14th. Proposals are due a month later on April 14th. And we've got a lot of folks in the contracting community worried about whether they're actually competitive. And I'll give you a couple of examples. One is the final solicitation sets up the small business and the veterans employment opportunities to be gamed in the system. It is about a point system for this. So there are those who small businesses, organic small businesses who want to go it alone, who, who might not be able to compete in this way. And I think that might run counter to some of what the administration is trying to do with small businesses, which is to encourage them. Well, how can they game the system or what's the point system that favors companies joining up with large companies, it sounds like. Yeah, they are encouraging joint ventures and teaming arrangements. What I find interesting, and this is a direct quote from one of our member companies, is that you could drive a Mack truck through the requirements. You know, this is a Veterans Affairs solicitation focused on health information technology and customer experience. There's not a lot of mention of health IT and customer experience in the requirements. So we do wonder whether the contracting offices and evaluation offices are talking to the program managers about what they really need. The gaming comes into play when it's a point system and you got to figure out who you can partner with and whether or not they have VA experience seems to be relatively immaterial. So then do you expect there would be, I mean, the association would not do this, but I wonder if it could engender some pre-award protests. That's been known to happen with big IDIQs around here. (laughs) It's actually more the rule than the exception, I think. And I think you're exactly right, Tom. This does open itself up to protest. And so we'll have to see what happens in that landscape on that part of it. And you mentioned there were a couple of short periods in which industry could comment. Is there evidence that any of the commentary that came in, I guess, eight days total, was incorporated into the final solicitation? There were some tweaks made, but overall, when we look at the solicitation, we do wonder how much they actually incorporated. We're still waiting to see, or at least I'm waiting to see, the second round of Q&A and how they answered some of the questions that were posed. But overall, um, you know, this does look very similar to the previous versions. And we look forward to seeing how the VA evaluates the proposals when they get them. Of course, protests are always the sticky wicket for them. All right. We're speaking with Stephanie Castro, Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. And continuing on the VA theme, it's getting under the president's request anyway for 2024, a 2.2% overall budget increase. That's among the skinnier increases we're seeing. 
And there's a couple of large departments that are actually getting decreases under the request. Again, anything could happen. But it shows a philosophical approach, if that's what you consider a budget. And you're concerned about the inflation effects in budgets of that nature? We are, Tom, and thanks for bringing this up. You know, we hear a lot in the news about the defense budget and what's happening on that front. And we've got a lot of budget detail from the Defense Department, so we can unpack that. On the civilian agency side, there's a really vast discrepancy among some of the agencies. Overall, the administration is correct in saying civilian agencies are seeing a 6.2% increase over last year. And it looks like that might reflect a calculation of 2.4% inflation. And I would love 2.4% inflation at this point, um, because obviously over the last 12 months, we've seen it range from that to a high of some 9%. And so the increase of 6.2 across all the civilian agencies is not evenly spread. As you noted, the VA has roughly a 2.2% increase. It's not matching that inflation budget. So in real terms, you wonder what exactly are they cutting here? There are some agencies that are seeing huge increases. EPA, a 19% increase. USDA has a 14% increase. I will say some of the notable lows, transportation is seeing a 2.9% decrease. The administration may argue on that because they are moving some pieces of the discretionary budget or they're proposing to move some pieces into the mandatory column. And so when we're looking at a 2.9% decrease in discretionary, we got to factor in what they're trying to move to mandatory. So it's interesting to see what exactly is being played around with here. Um, And I'm looking forward to seeing some of the budget details for the civilian agencies. And what are you seeing in terms of labor rate possibilities for contractors, given that federal employees and so forth are scheduled for some kind of a decent raise anyway, 4 or 5%. We don't know what it'll end up being, but the president has indicated 5% or 5.2. You know, Tom, thanks for bringing that up. I want to be clear that the Professional Services Council and our member companies are happy that the civilians and the military are getting a 5.2% proposed increase here. The problem that we're facing as a contractor community is that we're not seeing a similar increase in labor rates for contractors. This, in essence, tends to squeeze out an already stretched workforce when they can make more money on the commercial marketplace for labor than they can in contracts. And so when you're increasing pay for military and civilian, we are all for that, but we're not seeing a competent or a comparable increase on the contractor side. And that really makes a tough labor market even tougher. And some of these agencies that are getting large increases, you mentioned EPA, for example, National Science Foundation is getting a whopper of an increase, transportation down a little bit. Any sense of what types of professional services are going to be in demand and how that might differ at all from the current picture? You know, we're seeing a lot of movement, Tom, on the cyber and the tech side. We talked, you and I, about the Technology Modernization Fund a while ago. And that is also seeing a proposed budget of $200 million. Last year, they proposed $300 million. And you may remember in the American Rescue Plan Act, TMF got bumped up a billion dollars. So we're seeing additional movement on the tech and the cyber side. If you look at the president's budget, the main document that was released, it mentioned cyber 49 times. That's a really, really high number of times mentioning cyber, looking at places like CISA, the, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency over at DHS, seeing a $3.1 billion budget for them, which is an increase of $145 million just for resilience. There's a lot of movement in that space. And so I know some of our member companies are looking very closely at what they can do in the IT, cyber, tech space to sort of leverage these opportunities. And a final question on the Office of Federal Procurement Policy. There is no nominee yet for administrator there. And all this rulemaking is happening here and there on the FAR and so forth for some of the new climate reporting rules and 
and so on for procurement, you'd like to see someone in there maybe orchestrating that. Tom, the president has a number of nominations that are either still in the Senate under consideration, almost 100 over in the Senate, still waiting for a vote. He's got some 97 that he's not yet chosen a nominee, and three folks are waiting for a formal nomination. The administrator for the Office of Federal Procurement Policy is particularly interesting to the Professional Services Council because that is the person who will, you know, in, in theory at least, push the administration's, um, you know, regulatory, you know, ball down the field. And I'll say that in that the administration early on started talking about using acquisition as a catalyst. That was their catchphrase. And that is to say, to help advance diversity, equity, inclusion, to help advance climate change initiatives, etc. And so not having someone in that position with all the weight of being actually confirmed by the Senate is a little bit troubling. All that's to say, the OFPP acting administrator, Leslie Field, is wonderful. She's great, but she does lack the gravitas that comes with the Senate confirmation. And so I would hope that the administration, as they look to find additional nominees for these positions, would really prioritize getting someone in that slot permanently. Stephanie Castro is Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. As always, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, President of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in, your, um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field, and what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from 
formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president at Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have 
you mentioned Horace Mann. I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort I, of the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.